I always talk about how important patience is when you're learning a language because it's really, really hard and it takes a really, really long time. And recently I spoke to someone who understands that better than anybody, cognitive scientist Josh Hartshorn. In this interview, we talk about the critical period, language acquisition, and the importance of immersion. I hope you enjoy it. Josh Hartshorn, thank you very much for, for your time today. Sure. For people who don't know you and your work, could you just um, introduce yourself and talk a little bit about you know who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a professor of cognitive science in the psychology department at Boston College um, in Boston. And I work on language acquisition, um, pretty much anything involved in language acquisition. Uh, but a lot of my work lately has been focused on critical periods. So trying to understand why it gets harder to learn a language as you get older. Yes. And, and actually, that is the reason why, um, why we, we started talking via email, because of your uh, paper that you co-authored with Joshua Tenenbaum and Steven Pinker and, and discovered some really interesting things about, um, about how long it takes to learn a language and also about the critical period. And so based on that, I've, I've been telling students that it probably, it's probably going to take them about 30 years to achieve their kind of peak fluency. Do, do you think that's mm -hmm. fair? Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Um, yes. Uh, but I should point out that the, um, uh, the rate of returns goes down pretty quickly, right? So you learn the most in the first year, second most in the second year, and so on. And so how much you're learning in the last 10 years, I mean, it's measurable. Um, but if your goal mostly is to get around, um, it's not going to make a big difference. If your goal is to be able to um, sort of like read literature in the original, that's where you're really like, you need that extra time. Yeah, well, actually, I've personally found that um, by, by telling people that they're going to be fluent in 30 years instead of, say, three months, for example, it actually empowers them because I think it takes off the pressure to, to kind of um, advance really quickly, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and this leads me on to another question because I have another, um, another chart here from some of your other work which, which shows kind of where the peak performance is for different mm -hmm. tasks depending on your age. And so, mm -hmm. for example, when you're um, in your peak of about 50 or 60 years, 50, 60 years old, that's when your peak is about um, describing what words mean, about general knowledge and things like that, which, which makes sense to me, right? But pretty much all of the other measures, <laughs> you're, by the time you're 30, you know, your, your brain is basically in decline. Is that right? So um, I think that it's more complicated than that, right? So what you're able to do right now is going to be a function of a bunch of different things, how much practice you've gotten um, and, you know, uh, and some, I don't even know what to call them, uh, but uh, let's call them like latent abilities, right? So, so, I mean, it's also true that for sort of like physical fitness, um, sort of all else equal, people peak fairly early right? So in the late teens, early 20s. But in many sports, people don't hit their peak until their 30s. And what's going on there is not that they're, you know, at, quite as fast as they were when they were younger, um, but that they've had more time to practice. 
And so part of what we're going to see for like different cognitive abilities peaking at different times, one of the things that's going to matter there is how much they're dependent on practice. And obviously, older people have a like, built-in advantage in terms of practice. I'm kind of wondering, though, because so much of language learning seems to be things like working memory and, and, and other similar kind of brain, brain functions. Well, it leads me to the question that I'm kind of afraid to ask you, which is about um, the critical period hypothesis, mm -hmm. you know, and about critical periods, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of learners that I deal with and a lot of learners in the world in general of, of English as a second language, you know, they're adults. A lot of them have this idea in their mind that because they're adults, their ability to, to learn a language is, is kind of over. You know, they missed the boat. So could you just talk a little bit about what, what we know, what science knows about the critical period? Yeah, so we don't know very much. Um, what um, we found in my own work is um, looking at really just learning grammar and just people learning English. Um, so it's possible it doesn't generalize to other aspects of language or to other languages. Um, but from that, it looks like the ability to learn starts to decline pretty rapidly at around 17 to 18 years old. And this is something we've now replicated, again, in English. So I'm pretty confident in those data. Um, that, that probably explains why older people don't generally reach the same level of proficiency that someone who started young does. That's the bad news. But I think there's other, there's other news as well, right? Which is that the amount of time you spend learning um, dwarfs the effect of age, right? So I would, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of time learning the language, um, you're better off than someone much younger who just spent like a month or two. Um, similarly, uh, context matters a lot. So something else that's in that paper is um, something that we, we had known but not had really good you know, quantitative data on, which is that learning in an immersion environment also is a much bigger effect than the age at which you start learning. So, yes, yeah, so if you want to be as, you know, good as someone who started when they were an infant, you should start as an infant and wait 30 years. But, um, but if your goal is to be, you know, good enough to communicate and do the things that you want to do and, you know, an occasional grammatical disfluency is okay with you, um, you know, what I would do is study for a long time and try to do it as much as possible in an immersion environment, which means being in places where people actually speak the language, right? So it's one thing to, you know, do some flashcards every day. It's something else entirely to try to, like, navigate life in that language. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen some, some, some research that suggests that simulated immersion, so, you know, like mm -hmm. basically not living in the country, but, you know, watching television programs and listening to podcasts, and that probably has the same effect as what most people consider immersion as in moving to the country. Would you agree with that? Do you? So I don't, I don't think there's anything, you know, magical about being in a country where people speak the language. I think the immersion is really just about how much time do you spend using the language? And um, I would really, so here I don't have data, but I would advocate um, not just passive um, you know, exposure to the language, so watching shows, listening to podcasts, but also the expressive, because um, there really is a difference between um, listening and speaking. Um, so you can have people who are quite, actually can understand quite a lot, but can't formulate their own sentences. Yes, this is a really interesting phenomenon. People who have 
so much passive language. Like maybe they've lived in England for for twenty years, but they just can't. Mm-hmm. So, so what, 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 will you, what, what more would you add about that phenomenon? Um, what I would say is that is also something that requires practice. Um, so, one of the things that again we're still really at the um, sort of beginning of understanding development in general. I mean, you know, the study of the mind's not that old. Um, a long time ago, we thought. So, there's let me back up a little bit. There's a ton of things that adults can do that babies can't. And we used to think that's because like babies just simply lacked the ability, right? So they, you know, don't understand, they can't make predictions about what other people are going to do because they just like don't have the ability or, you know, they can't do math because they just like don't have the ability. And there's, and it's sort of like in the same way, babies, you know, generally don't have a lot of hair. You just have to like wait for it to grow in. Um, it turns out that babies actually can in principle do a lot of what adults do at very young ages. Um, they just don't. Um, and a lot of what seems to be going on there is practice. So, um, because the, uh, doing something just as simple as planning a motor mov- uh, movement. So wanting to like, you know, like have some remote control here and you want to be able to grasp it. There's actually a lot that goes on in there, like getting your hand in the right position, rotating it the right direction, moving it the right direction. There's like obviously eye hand coordination, and the calculations for that are enormously complex. This is why when people build robots, there's wonderful videos of some of our best robots right now that are grasping things. You'll see them go, and that's speeded up like 10,000 times. <laughs> Actually, like, it's enormous amount of calculation. And it's not because robots are dumb. It's because it is actually just that hard. And this is something that our brains have to learn to do much more rapidly. And one possibility of what's going on is basically that we've cached a lot of information, like a lot of, so we're not, you know, calculating on the fly, all of those motions, we have a few like, you know, set, um, sort of like pieces that we can put together. And a lot of what's going on in learning is learning those pieces. So bring that back to language. Um, So if you have to formulate a sentence completely from scratch every time, that actually is just, you know, we know from the math, really, really hard. It is a lot of calculation. And it is possible that just our, you know, brains are, you know, are really, really good at doing those calculations. The other possibility is actually, you're not building sentences from scratch most of the time. A lot of the sentences you're using are actually sentences you've said before and stored as a whole. Even when you're saying new sentences, you may not be, you know, putting that sentence together, you know, morpheme by morpheme, you have chunks, right? So like several words that you know are going to go together. And that's what speeds things up. And the only way to have those chunks around is to practice a lot. Well, I read, I read very recently um, Ben Ambridge's paper about exemplar theory. And he mm-hmm. sort of says that, you know, students, um, not students, babies, they just basically store everything and then they use this all this stored information to, to just sort of produce similar kind of sentences. Is that that's sort of what you're talking about maybe? So his version is you store everything that you hear and everything that you've said as a whole. Um, whereas what I'm talking about is more extracting like common patterns. So you're not necessarily remembering everything. You're just, you remember that you very often say, for instance, the phrase, you remember. I have said a bunch of times in the course of this, you know, conversation. 
and you know maybe you know coming in or certainly by this point i've said it so much that my brain is just like you know i'm probably going to need to say you remember again so let me just like plan those motor movements plan those linguistic calculations and just like have them there sort of to take off the shelf and use them as i need them so you can think about this a little bit like um refrigerator poetry where you have these like have you seen that these like little magnets with words or phrases that you can rearrange on the yeah so you imagine that what you've got is certainly you know all the individual words and morphemes you can create a new sentence when you need to but you also have all these you know chunks that you can use again and a lot of really obvious things are like idioms right so um you know kick the bucket or um um you know hard on my sleeve like all these almost all these things not kick the bucket i don't think but most of them come from shakespeare um but and we're used to thinking of those as idioms and you know that you have to store those kind of as chunks because the individual pieces don't make sense on their own but there's no reason that you can't also be storing just simple things like phrases like go to the store mm. and and does that sort of explain maybe like i have a five-year-old son and you know as you know a lot of children when they're when they're learning to speak and they want to speak in the past tense they don't use the irregular past tense verbs. They'll use a verb and just put ed on the end. Like, you know, I goed, I goed to the shop. Um, um, are, are, they, are they learning a rule where they're just, do they know that if they want to talk in the past, they need ed? Is that? So they do need to learn that rule. But part of the reason that kids probably fail at using it is that actually doing the calculations for using the rule in real time is hard. So even though it is a rule to add ed, they may both need to learn the rule, but also for a lot of the words that you know words that they use a lot, also just store that entire term, uh, phrase like walked. Uh, so one thing that um, kids have difficulty with is um, is understanding pronouns, for instance. Well, we can actually show that by 18 months old, uh, kids actually have can in principle interpret um, a lot of pronouns using some of the same uh, sort of like rules that adults do. The problem is that it takes them about four seconds to do it. And by that point, the conversation has moved on, right? So, you, so again, going back to this idea that there's, you know, kids can do a lot, um, but the problem is that they're too slow. And what we, you know, a lot of what a development is or, you know, learning is, is learning ways of being faster at doing these hard things. Um, and I keep, and I know it's weird for me to call them hard because most people are probably thinking, well, what's hard about pronouns? It turns out pronouns are really, really complicated. Um, it's just that most of the things that are really easy for us are exactly those things that are complicated because they're the things that sort of like our brains were built to do. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I saw some of the examples on, well, in some of your work about, um, you know, how subject and object pronouns, like you're not sure what they're referring to. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the problem is, is actually ambiguity, right? Like, mm -hmm. and somehow humans solve the, this ambiguity problem based on all of the prior knowledge that they have mm -hmm. accumulated, but children don't have this prior knowledge, right? So... Mm -hmm. They don't have the prior knowledge, and also, again, just um, I want to keep on going back to the same thing, which is that the computation is actually hard. Um, so, 
So then you so you saw so if you saw my work on pronouns, well I guess we don't have any of this published yet, but we have a computational model that at least in a very like small world that doesn't have very many words and doesn't have very many things to talk about, um, we can actually um, get human-like performance on pronoun interpretation, um, which is really impressive because sort of like the state of the art language systems, like the way they handle pronouns is to just not try. Um, it's actually just that hard. The problem is that to actually run our model takes a long time. And this is in a very small world that has, again, a, like a dozen words and really just two people playing tug of war. That's like all that happens in this like little model world. And when we want to, if we wanted to scale that up, we actually like right now, again, we have all this proof of concept. We think that probably our model could explain uh, human pronoun interpretation in general but we couldn't get it to run in any sort of realistic situation. Um, and it's not a matter of um, the, uh, the um, uh, computers not being fast enough. It's we're in one of these situations where it's like there are more calculations required than there are atoms in the universe. You're not going to build a computer large enough. Um, and what this means is that you know, if our model is right, then what's going on is the brain has sort of very clever tricks to do to basically not do these computations, but estimate them very, very rapidly. And this is where a lot of the work uh, in sort of computational modeling, artificial intelligence is these days, trying to figure out what those tricks are. And one of those tricks um, that we know works quite well is something called dynamic programming. Um, which is a fancy way of saying remembering stuff, like memorizing chunks. Oh, wow, memorizing chunks. It's funny because I was, I think on, on um, Wednesday, yeah, so two days ago, I was speaking to Peter Gardenforce from, from, from Lund, and he, he, he wrote the book The Geometry of, of Meaning about semantic spaces, and he said that that's the, what, what work he's doing right now. He's trying to teach robots how to learn pronouns, and it's so weird that 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 this that such a simple inconsequential thing is people are devoting their, their lives to solving this this problem. Some folks have been arguing that pronoun interpretation is like the new Turing test. Are you familiar with the Turing test? Yes, yes. To see if a if if a, if a simulation is a human or a computer, right? Well, the basic idea was like how would you like Turing's original question was how would you know if we had an intelligent computer? And his answer was basically along the lines, well, how do you know anyone is intelligent? Basically by the fact that they act intelligent. And so let's find something that seems really hard to do. And if our, you know, the machine can do that as well as a human can, then we have as much evidence that they are intelligent as we have for any human. Um, and, but when he said hard, he, like, he already had the notion that like this sort of like social activities are probably particularly hard, which they are. I mean, this is why self-driving cars still don't work. It's not a sort of the physics. It's uh, the, they can't figure out what other people are going to do. And so for instance, um, one thing that they may have solved by now, but has been an old problem is uh, crossing the street at a crosswalk always involves a certain amount of negotiation between a car and pedestrian, right? Pedestrian starts going and, you know, if they don't have a death wish, though, they're keeping track of whether like the oncoming car traffic slows down or not. And if it doesn't, they may back off. But conversely, the car may not try to slow down until the, the driver is confident that the person's actually going to cross the street. Right. So, so there's this negotiation back and forth. 
Um, and the self-driving cars get really confused by this because they can't do that, like that social interaction. So they see the person starting to like slow down a little bit, which, you know, people will do to see whether or not the car is slowing down. And they're like, oh, the person's stopping and like gun on the <laughs> gas. So they like literally try to run people down. Uh, it's just they've got like the wrong intuitions. So anyway, so Turing's test was um, like a social parlor game. So in the original version, apparently this was a popular game in like uh, in Georgian England, which was um, uh, trying to guess whether the person you were talking with was male or female. So the original version of it was like, if the robot is as good at playing this game, trying to trick you into thinking it's male or female as a person is, then it's a person. Um, and this, you know, morphed into the, you know, is it a robot or not? So there are like problems with this test though. Uh, the main one is scoring, right? So it's actually a very hard game to score. Um, it's hard to know when you're making, you know, incremental progress, like, okay, you know, is our like machine doing better than the last one? Um, and, um, and it's pretty unconstrained. Uh, and actually, the uh, the way that um, people have gamed the system a little bit is by having chatbots that have flights of fancy. So they'll just like change uh, conversation topics, and the conversation topics are usually just sort of like um, jokey rather than doing any like real conver <coughs> conversation. So anyway, pronouns are different. Like pronouns have a definite interpretation. We can have a whole bunch of sentences where people that have pronouns where people have strong intuitions about what the pronoun refers to. And now we can ask a robot, you know, who does this pronoun refer to? And we can actually grade it on each sentence, which is super helpful in, in terms of, you know, actually being able to get that incremental progress and know when you're making progress. But it also seems to uh, take in like everything, right? So obviously all of language comes into play. Like if you can't use language, you can't do this, but also, uh, as far as we can tell, everything you know about the world, right? So to give like from my like tug of war example, um, say like Albert beat um, Bartholomew at tug of war because he is strong. Who's strong, Albert or Bartholomew? Well, Albert. Albert lost to Bartholomew because he is strong. And now Bartholomew is strong, right? So like apparently knowing something about who wins at tug of war and how that relates to strength is important for interpreting these pronouns. But I can totally flip this around by giving you this like weird scenario in which um, uh, the god of weaklings, apparently there is one, there's a god of weaklings who's really tired of strong people always winning at tug of war and just declare and decides to intervene on every future game of tug of war to make the weaker person win. And so now if you have Albert beat uh, Bartholomew at tug of war because he is strong, now Bartholomew must be strong because if Albert, had, like Bartholomew must be stronger than Albert because otherwise the god would have intervened to flip who won. So, so it requires all this kind of external knowledge, which, yeah, I can imagine how computers would have a lot of problems with that. Yeah, and so this is why the pronouns are, there's a lot of people right now who are particularly interested in pronouns because of this idea that basically it's, um, as like a question for scientists to work on something that really like involves everything. And um, so it's both, you know, if you could solve it, you would solve AI. Um, but also it means that it's a place where we can try to put together our different theories of different things and see how well they play together. So this is part of my work on this has been taking some 
uh, models of common sense reasoning that colleagues of mine have been working on and trying to hook it up to models of language that I've been working on to see, like, do they play well together? Um, you know, in combination, can they solve this problem? And, uh, and for conversations about, or actually for single sentences about two people playing tug of war, yes, these models put together work very well. Whether it scales up, again, right now we can't even find out because the calculations are too hard. Because it seems to me that so far I'm, I'm getting a, a kind of a sense from you that, that a lot of the way that we possibly learn languages is about storing things in chunks. And, and I'm wondering, um, because a lot of people sort of ask the question like, should adults try to learn a language the way that a child does? Should we try to kind of copy that in terms of you don't really study, you just sort of immerse yourself, you know, you throw yourself into conversations and you just sort of build yourself up like that? Or, I mean, based on all the work that you've done, what what, what do you think would be kind of the best basis for, for, for going about as an adult going about learning a language? Do you have any ideas about that? I think like the only way we're going to know if that actually works is to um, uh, is to actually like put some adults in that situation, which like nobody volunteers for, right? What you would really want to test this is take somebody and drop them in a village in the Amazon, where they're definitely not going to have any contact with anyone who speaks their native language, and just see what happens. So I'm saying is that I don't know. Um, I think there here I think are the basic arguments on the different sides. One is uh, the best language learners we know are small children, and that's the way they do it. So it seems like a good idea. That's basically the evidence in favor. The evidence against are a few things. One, we are not small children. And just because something works for them doesn't mean that it's going to work for us. Second, we do know in the long run, small children will learn more than adults. But in the short run, that's not the case. So um, when they followed, for instance, immigrants over, say, the first year, of learning uh, a language, the adults learn more than the kids do. Um, actually, the old, the older adolescents learn the most, um, but like the little kids don't learn very much. And we, I mean, we've known this actually for a long time. If you bring, you know, back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, scientists thought, oh, well, we can crack this like critical periods thing. We're going to bring kids and adults in the laboratory, teach them a little bit of a foreign language, see what the kids are doing better. And the answer is nothing. Adults always do better in these studies. Anything you try to teach them, the adult always does better. Why? Presumably because we're using a lot of, you know, learned strategies. Um, and we've learned a lot about learning and we've gotten good at it. Um, and so we can do it much more quickly, at least in the short term. Why this doesn't translate into those long-term benefits, I think is still an open question. So I think when, when people who are going with the, um, you know, you should do it like a baby, Argument, what they're saying is, well, in the short term, you're not going to learn anywhere near as much as the people who are going to class and using flashcards. But I bet if you wait long enough, it will pay off. And when I say, like, nobody has tried this, part of it is that I think, like, nobody has the patience to be like, I'm going to do this thing that I know is not working for me and see how far it, like, on the theory that eventually, if I wait 10 years, it'll help. Um, and I think that's the other thing that you can have... Like, even if it were true that in the long run you would be better off this way, um, you would want to take into account like that you know you are a person with motivations and you might you know want to be able to communicate sooner. 
And so, you know, realistically, um, flashcards probably a better option. Is it possible that the explanation for the critical period is nothing to do with kind of physiology in the brain? It's just simply that um, children just spend the first 18 years in education and, you know, they, they have more maybe like social pressure and other kinds of extrinsic motivation to learn. And when you become an adult, you know, you just, you know, you're not, you're probably not in education, you're busy, you know, you're working, things mm -hmm. like that. I mean, is it possible that, you know, that, that that's the explanation? I, mean, I think we know that that plays a role. Um, and I think that we know other things are related to that play a role, which is children have a lot less choice in what language they're going to use. As an adult, even as an expat, you can still just choose to hang out with the other expats, right? And if you find like learning the new language just like too frustrating, you might actually just move back home. And children don't have that option. And so they're going to be forced into doing that practice all the time. Um, and so if I were to advocate something, it would be putting yourself in those situations where you're forced to use the language and don't have the option of dropping back on your native language, which is easier. And so you're going to want to do it. It's kind of like nobody goes to the gym because that's easier than sitting on the couch, right? Something that you have to force yourself to do because there's something that you want. Um, so I think your argument about, um, you know, children are just spending a lot of time learning anyway. And so, you know, they're going to be, you know, more motivated or just have the time to learn. Um, I think that argument actually interestingly cuts two ways. So there's some neat computational work arguing that there should be a critical period for language and it should be early in life. Um, and the basic argument goes like this, which is um, that whenever you're optimizing for one thing, you're not optimizing for something else, right? So, you know, if you were trying to turn yourself into, um, you know, the best soccer player in the world, you would not necessarily also be the best computer programmer in the world, right? You just like have only so much time, you can only do one thing, or whenever you're picking and staying in the same sports, the best soccer player is not going to be the best swimmer. It's just like it actually requires different muscles and they may actually be in competition with each other. So, you know, optimizing for something always means being worse at something else. So given that, uh, given that learning language is very important, if you're going to be like optimized for learning language, then you're probably not optimized for other things um, that may also be important for survival. So given that you would expect evolution to um, result in a system where you have basically a critical period, a period in which like you're optimized for language learning and then another portion of your life in which you're optimized for something else. Um, now, given that, you know, when should you be optimized for language learning? Well, obviously early in life because it would be stupid to be optimized for language learning in your 60s. A little late is not going to do you as much good at that point. Um, and when you ask like, well, what could you be optimized for? Well, there's, you know, there are a number of reasons to suppose that we, that being optimized for learning is actually going to also result, basically, if you're better at learning, you're probably also better at forgetting, right? Basically, like, if your brain can change more easily, then it can also change in ways that result in you losing what's in there. And given that, you might want to, um, you know, at, cert at a certain point, be like, okay, I have got my language, and I want to keep it. So I'm going to stop 
you know, being as good at learning new languages in order to not forget the language that I already have. And there's obviously some costs on that, which is if you then decide, you know, later in life that you need to learn a new language, that's not as good as if you, you know, if you had been, you know, optimized for language learning the whole time, but then you also would have run this risk. Well, like maybe while learning the new language, you just forget your old one, which may also not be great. And in general, um, in general, most people don't have, or people generally have less of a need of learning new languages the older that they get. Because I know that, you know, you spend your life kind of in the trenches with the science of language and a lot of kind of, maybe you could say more abstract, um, a more abstract kind of angle on language. But um, why, why are you interested in language acquisition? I mean, why, why do you think that people should, should learn languages? Well, for me, I just always wanted to. So uh, this is what I would do in my spare time anyway. Um, or rather, I've been interested in languages, and part of being interested in languages is also being interested in learning them. Um, why people should, in general, um, I answer it this way. There's a lot of discussion of like the the bilingual executive, uh, like the bilingual baby advantage, you know, hypothesis that bilingual babies have, um, you know, better executive function. That adults, you know, older adults who are bilingual are, you know, less susceptible to dementia, and these are given as you know possible reasons for, um, you know, why people should be bilingual. Um, the data on that aren't that clear. In any case, I think there's no way those reasons are going to be anywhere as good as someone who knows two languages knows two languages. There's a lot you can do with that second language. Uh, I kind of feel like that should be reason enough. The, just the, the practical side, just the real benefits, like tangible benefits, ra rather mm -hmm. than some kind of abstract, like, you know, maybe it will yeah, offset dementia by five years, but, you know. Or it won't. We don't know. Well, this, is, this has been super enlightening. Um, and uh, I, I really thank you for your time. Um, and and I, hope, I, hope that, um, I hope that I'm not... Um, I'm not paraphrasing you too, too broadly uh, by saying that perhaps the secret to learning a language that, that, that you've sort of discovered by looking at babies is just a lot of practice. Yeah, nothing's going to beat that. Josh Hartshorn, thank you very much for your time. Sure, of course.